0: I remember reading a story about Doctor Stephen Olford, who was at one time pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan. And while he was riding in a taxi cab in New York City, he was witnessing to the taxi cab driver, who asked, "If you are a man of God, why would you want to live?" in a wicked city like new york dr olford replied young man i can tell by your accent that you're jamaican i have often visited that lovely island now i want to ask you a question have you ever seen the white lily that grows in the bog in your native land and the cab driver replied oh yes man, that lily is so white as it stands up in uh, in that black, dirty bog. Olford's then remark said, "The reason that I am in New York City as a minister of Jesus Christ is because I am a lily in the bog." Folks, we should remember that as believers living in a pagan society, that we should be as that lily in the bog. We should stand out. And there are many people that say, oh, no, 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 we need to go where there's all Christians and all... We will get that joy in heaven. That's not what we seek now. We seek to be the witness of Jesus Christ here in this black, dirty bog. We should witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring that gospel to the lost and be a light in this dark and perishing generation. This generation that blindly marches into a burning hell. I fear that we're not the witness that we ought to be. I fear that many of us don't have regular witness at all. Some of us haven't shared the gospel with a single lost person over the last year, or maybe never. We need to be regularly calling men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul declared in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 20, he said, Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But many of us aren't doing that. Many of us aren't witnessing to anyone because we think it's good enough just to be in church on Sunday. I'm going to tell you that there's a lot of pastors who miss this as well. Because they feel that if they preach the the gospel on Sunday morning, that they are doing their part in preaching. And yet they're preaching to the same congregation over and over. And they think that everything is good because I'm preaching the gospel. Folks, I have to meet that as well. I need to be that lily in the black world as well. We are all called to advance the purpose of the gospel to this present generation. We are all called to be stewards in this moment of time in human history, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to every man, woman, and child under heaven. You see, then it's only then that we can join with the apostle Paul in his triumphant, triumphant declaration in the face of death that he made in second Timothy chapter four and verses seven and eight. He said there, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give To me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Whether or not we desire, whether or not we are not sure of what he has given us as far as our ministry. We have to have a degree of influence on this generation because we will all give an account before God of what we have done, what we have said, how we have brought the gospel to those who are perishing. Therefore, we need to know better. how to seek influence in our generation. We need to look at what our lives are called to be according to the will and purpose of God. And as you might guess from the text this morning, it's the last part of the Gospel of Mark. The message is focusing on and around the Great Commission. And by the way, I, for just kicks, I ended up looking at I've been preaching in the Gospel of Mark for one year, nine months and 27 days. I once talked to a pastor as I was preaching through, I think it was Ephesians. And he said, "Oh, I preached through Ephesians, and I took one month and preached through." I said, how long are your sermons? He goes about 12, 12 and a half minutes. He preached through the entire book, according to him, in one month. Most of you realize that the sermons that you have here are an hour long, and maybe some a little bit more. My sermons are longer than his monthly sermon. It took me well over two years to go through Ephesians Do you know what the difference is? And I pray that this isn't haughty? I think I know what God desires is to hit for His word to go forth, to take it seriously, to end up preaching in such a manner that you don't look at the Word of God flippantly that you end up realizing that this is God speaking to his people. This is to be able to have this message that glorifies uh, God and brings people to Christ. My fear is he didn't have that focus. He had that focus of just saying, I'm going to bring something that nobody's going to argue with. No one's going to come up to him after the sermon and say, Well, Pastor, I think what we have to do is we have to be what Mark says is a people that are willing to take the Word of God and work out the will of God in our lives Because we know that at this moment in time, Jesus Christ is in his perfect place. He's making intercession at the right hand of the Father for us. And we are in our perfect place to take the word of God to the lost and dying generation. So if you would please turn to our text for this morning, as found in Mark chapter 16. We'll be looking at the last few verses, 15 through 20, and that will finish our study through Mark's gospel. Starting with verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanied signs. Amen. Now, before I get into the exposition of this text, I'd just like to ask you the question of why are we here? What is our purpose of being on this planet as believers in Jesus Christ? And what is the church of Jesus Christ all about? Well, the answer is to make disciples. That's what the church is all about. That's the focus of the command of Christ. That is why we exist in our present state. If you think about it, What you know of the Bible. What is the whole Bible really about? The Bible is about, it is a record of mankind rebelling against God and God pursuing mankind to reconcile them to himself. That's the core of what God does on this planet. Now I'd like to borrow from John MacArthur's commentary on this. John MacArthur states, and I quote, the great mission of the church is to so love, learn, and live as to call men and women to Jesus Christ. As sinners are forgiven and are transformed from death to life and from darkness to light, God is glorified through that gracious miracle. The glory of God is manifest in his loving provision to redeem lost men. He himself paid the ultimate price to fulfill his glory. Therefore, the believer who desires to glorify God, who wants to honor God's supreme will and purpose, must share God's love for the lost world and share in his mission to redeem the lost to himself. Christ came into the world that he loved and sought to win sinners to himself for the Father's glory. As Christ's representatives, we are likewise sent into that, into the world that He loves to bring the lost to Him and therefore bring glory and honor to God. That's our mission. That is what uh, we are to do. Again, in uh, MacArthur's commentary, in a parallel verse in, in Matthew, we read, If God's primary purpose for the saved were loving fellowship, he would take believers immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. If the primary purpose for the saved were the learning of his word, he would take believers immediately to heaven where his word is perfectly known and understood. And if God's purpose for saved were to give him praise, he would again take believers immediately to heaven where praise is perfected and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on the earth is to seek and save the lost just as Christ's only reason for coming to earth was to seek and save the lost. John 20, 21 says, As the Father has sent me, I also sent you. MacArthur says, Therefore, a believer who is not committed to winning the lost for Jesus Christ should re-examine his relationship to the Lord and certainly his divine reason for existence. End quote. I'd like to just add something. I I almost feel like how can I add something to what uh, Dr. MacArthur said, but I would like to say that part of discipleship, part of making disciples is to train and encourage that which is godly behavior, to discourage and rebuke sinful behavior. That's often done inside the body of Christ, and that's that has its place in the proper mission of the church. Evangelism and discipleship are covered in Christ's command in our text, not just evangelism. We are to make disciples of ourselves, of each other, and those who respond to the gospel of Christ in the world. It's all part of the mission. The go therefore in our text is not the primary emphasis. In fact, it's really uh, it really isn't an imperative. It could easily be translated having gone or some understand it as as you are going. You see, so many people go, oh, go into the world. Go into the world to do what? I've heard of Short-term mission trips where people go and they paint, they play games, they have plays, they do all of that, and the gospel of Jesus Christ never comes out of their mouth clear enough for somebody to even reject it. So it is not just go, it's go to do what? Well, hopefully by the end of this message, you will understand. Because we are in the world every day of the week. You mean that I need to go somewhere and so that someone else could come here? We have a mission here. Doesn't mean that we don't go into other nations as well. But when you sit there and go, well, you know, you're just not really doing anything. You know, I need to go to some other country. Really, you're going to some other country when your neighbor has not heard the gospel out of your mouth. But somehow you think that that would be great if I went to some other country. There are so many things that are a problem with that thought. That's because we lose our perspective. We lose the focus on everything that is most important. We lose perspective of why we're here. We think that we're here so that people like us. They'll think we're funny. We'll think, they'll think we're competent. They'll find value in me. But I think what is most important, and I know what's most important, is being useful in bringing the gospel to the lost. Let's look again at our text. In verse 15, here we read, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Isn't this sort of funny? Because Jesus just got done rebuking these unbelieving, hard-hearted men of the fact that he is commissioning them now to go and tell everyone else to believe. What Jesus commissions is for them to go into the world and preach the gospel to every every creature. That word preach is the Greek word keruso, and it means to publicly proclaim. Their job is not to debate, not to discuss, not to entertain, but proclaim. The beauty and simplicity of these words ought to be super apparent, but sometimes they're not. We think the main focus is going. Sometimes we we think that our responsibility for witness is not so important. What is our witness? Well, we're Christians. Well, good for you. You need to go with a message. And here, to Caruso is to preach. It doesn't mean that you're a pastor or a teacher. It means that you are a proclaimer. The spiritual gift of teaching is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit, enabling one to effectively communicate, communicate the truth of the Bible to others, that's great. It's most often, but not always, used in context of the local church, the gift of teaching, the gift of of preaching. But a gifted teacher is one who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit, who has a unique ability to clearly instruct, communicate, to build up people in the doctrines of faith and truth of the Bible. And God gave spiritual gifts to edify the church. But you see, there's more. The Apostle Paul instructed the church at Corinth to seek and edify and build up Christ's church, telling them that since they were eager to have spiritual gifts, uh, they should, as it says in 1 Corinthians, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. A spiritual gift is the Greek word charismata, and it's supernatural It's God-given ability to perform a ministry for building up the body of Christ. It is given graciously by God. It cannot be earned. Now, they can be developed as it's given, but it requires a supernatural ability to exercise. This is is what a preacher and teacher does. And that Greek word for, for teach, is didakalos, and it means to instruct. It means to edify the church through those gifts. As people are listening to the word of God, they can understand it enough to apply it to their lives. And God has raised up people with those gifts. And that is to do what, though? It is to enable the church to grow, Grow, as 2 Peter 3.18 says, in all wisdom and knowledge. What? So so you all of a sudden go, well, yeah, I guess I know what that means. And then you sit on your hands. No. It has nothing with to do with, boy, I just need more knowledge. I need more wisdom. If you needed more wisdom and knowledge, do what MacArthur says. It should be that the moment we believe, boom, we're transported to heaven. That wisdom and knowledge is to be used. And so Jesus commanded his disciples to teach new disciples everything he could, had commanded, instructing them in both doctrine and holy living. Christ's ministers are not to teach the, man, uh, the commandments of men or any of their own devising. They are ordered to preach what Christ has given them. And so with all that said that does not mean that every believer is an evangelist or a missionary but I do think that 1 Peter 2:9 instructs all people to declare the excellencies of Christ in the network of their relationships you all know this verse 1 Peter 2:9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. It's not just talking about pastors. It's not just talking about missionaries. It's not just talking about those who lead. It's talking about you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Are you part of that? Yes, you are, if you are in Christ Continues, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. But Christ also gave his disciples this commission in order that they would write it down so that Christians from all generations would understand and have a complete uh, 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 canonized scripture that they know is is accurate and true and and has everything it needs for us to live in this world. The gospel is of universal importance. It is ordained for all creation. Wherever you go, go with the message of the gospel on your lips. I always say, you know what? If if you go somewhere, rattle the knob. Everyone goes, well, you know, I didn't do anything because I didn't have an open door to do it. An open door. So you expect that it's going to be wide open. Someone's going to walk up to you and say, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? You might as well fluff the pillow because you're dreaming if you think that's going to happen. What you need to do is go out and rattle knobs. If I told you to go up to my house and pick up something, the door's open, you wouldn't think it's wide open. You would think it's unlocked. How do you know whether it's unlocked? Rattle that knob. That's what we need to do. Wherever we go, rattle that knob, see if that door is indeed open, and then be bold enough to go through. We need to, we need to show that we have evidence of, of Christ in our own lives, though. It is an offense when we say that we are Christians and we have a life that looks like the world. What does light have to do with darkness? We need to speak the truth. We need to love the truth. There are so many people that say, you know, we need to preach the gospel daily, use words if necessary. You know what? That's, that's baloney. That's like saying that you're going to go feed the hungry and use food if necessary. The gospel needs to be on our lips. And it says here in our text, go preach, preach to all creation. That noun creation is the Greek word uh, katesis. Uh, and it's a word that refers to all people who have been created by God. Those who support abortion would do well in looking at the seriousness of this word. Humans have been created by God. And what they need to hear is the gospel. When you preach, don't sit there and pick out people that you think would make good Christians. Preach to all creation, all people, all regardless of who they are. Preach to the rich, preach to the poor, preach to men, men, women, and children. Preach to politicians and jailbirds. Some people would say there's no difference, but I'm not going to get into that. We preach to the lawmakers and the lawbreakers, right? So we preach to all people, all backgrounds, all sins. Preach the gospel to them. If they're breathing, they're a candidate to hear the gospel. I would, I would think this would be enough to end any ideas of saying that one ethnic group is more important than Another it isn't there is great equity in god's approach toward humanity everyone is explicitly a target for the gospel of christ none more important than another and in the parallel verse in, in matthew 28:19 there it says go, <clears throat> excuse me go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew uses the terms all nation instead of every creature. I think that puts it in better perspective for us. Those in the past have tried to make a distinction on on how God regards different people, the need for mission, you know, that's, that's where I, I often hear people go, oh man, they're just at the bottom. They need to hear Christ. So what you're saying is that someone reaches rock bottom and then they need Christ. Do you know what? The rich young ruler needed Christ. And if you think that it's a work of situation, instead of a work of God in the Holy Spirit changing the heart, we fall into that real easy because we think, oh man, if they're in this right situation, their heart will be changed. No, their heart is changed regardless what situation they're in because it's done by the Holy Spirit. And so we reach all nations. This is probably easier for us than those who Christ sent out in his day. Because these men were primarily Jewish followers. And when Christ said that this mission is to be carried out to all nations, you can just imagine all the, all the apostles going, yeah, but, you know, um, you just don't really realize what's going on, Jesus. But Jesus was clear. He said, all nations. Now, as I said, every individual doesn't go to all nations. The church as a whole doesn't go to all nations, but some do. Hopefully there are people that you know that are in missions in other countries that you are more than willing to support. And as a church, the church as a whole supports people. But it's individuals that take the gospel. We... We are to proclaim the gospel, to declare the gospel. All those whom we have contact with. So the bottom line is that we are all to proclaim the excellencies of Christ by personal witness of the gospel to those who have not yet believed. And so continuing with verse 16 of our text. Here it says he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. This if you use verse theology which means that you just look at one verse and you make your your doctrinal uh uh state on just one verse you're you're going to be really messed up on this because you cannot do that whenever you are are uh Considering doctrine or theology, you have to look at the whole counsel of God. Because one thing that we do know, that baptism does not save. And the lack of baptism does not damn. That's not what it's saying here. That those who believe will act on it. Those who believe will be identified with it. Those who believe will step out publicly and own their identification with Christ. They'll own their part with Christ and they will declare it publicly through baptism. I hope you see what I'm saying here. This is what the Lord is saying to his disciples. He's saying you cannot separate faith from obedience. You cannot separate belief from conduct. We don't elevate baptism and obedience to the place of Christ because it is Christ alone that saves. And the word baptism here is the word baptizo, and it means to fully immerse. That's important. To fully immerse, because that's what we're supposed to do. As we are to be a person who is fully immersed in the the, uh, in Christ, and, and that's an, an outward action of something that has happened in our lives. You see, when a baptized, when a believer is baptized and immersed, it symbolizes the death to themselves and in their sin. When they come out of the water, it symbolizes a rising from death rising from our previous condition to a new life, a new power. Baptism declares a person's identity with Christ. If you would please turn to Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We show that we are no longer constrained by the power of the old man, the power of sin, the power of the devil. We are no longer under and held captive to that. We have risen to be under the power of Christ. We are under the power of Christ, and which is the power over death. And so when people are baptized, that's an external ceremony that represents that internal reality what we're saying is the person identified as a born again follower of christ they have been regenerate that's that's a huge deal that's not just something hey let's go through this and you'll be saved first corinthians 130 and 31 says but of him You are in Christ who became for us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. My friends, He alone is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And that's everything that we convey in baptism. Again, we've been made a new creature, a new creation. And therefore, it's it's saying that we have such a love for our Lord who saved us that we want to show this publicly. 1 John 4.8 says, He who does not love does not know God. There are so many people who miss this they go through baptism and and it's just one of these things that we we go through, one of those things we do. But we need to really realize what the command of Christ is. Our marching orders, they don't come from the uh, uh, from the world. They come from Christ. They come from the scripture that we read. You know, we need to, to show that, and we need to show people of all generations that we are sinners by nature. We are sinners by practice. And that has, has died. We have died to ourselves. You know, all, all men are, are free moral agents, but they don't have free will. That's one thing that people go, well, they have free will to do whatever they want. No. It is the reason that a person can be moral and yet unsaved. It's not morality that saves. It's a a view of the new nature that we have in Christ. It's a view that Jesus died for us, that we, by nature, deserve death but there are those who go well we have the free uh we we have the ability to choose what is good no we don't no one chooses good not no not one no one is after god we don't have the free will in truly doing good we can do things that look spiritual but in our sin we are slaves to sin because we have carnal minds. In our carnal minds, it says, are at enmity with God. The Bible is very clear that we need to understand that when someone sits there and says, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to do this, go to church. I go to church every time that the doors open, I'm there. We need to be able to show them. That's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. There is nothing you can do to earn that favor with God. It is all Christ, all on his sacrifice for you in your place. And every person who would be saved has to come to that place through the preaching of the word. That is how people are saved, through the preaching of the word. In other words, they need to be able to act upon the message of the the gospel, and that message is repent and believe. And if they don't, they will perish. But he who believes will be saved. That's an essential truth, people. Every person who would be saved must believe that Christ paid the penalty that we were owed. And those who have been saved... By faith, they will desire to submit to Him in obedience through baptism. Remember, it says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. That word we see, faith is a substance, that Greek word is hypostasis, And it means a substructure, a foundation. So faith is the foundation of things hoped for. And then it says the evidence of things not seen. That word uh, evidence is the Greek word elenkos. And it means proof. Things that have been tested or proved. And so our profession must be followed by an act of proof. And that's done by our obedience. Baptism and confession are the first outward signs of obedience to Christ. It's where our profession is followed up with possession. Baptism doesn't save, it's only an outward sign. Just like that ring that when you're married you wear, you exchange that as a symbol of your love. Does this ring ensure love and fidelity? No, it's only an outward sign. It's what baptism is. It's an outward sign, a commitment. I am all in. All people who are outside of Christ, those who have never believed in Christ and His finished work of obedience, suffering, redemption, and death, are presently under the condemnation of God, presently under his righteous wrath. So how important is it that you and I proclaim this and preach this gospel so that they would see their guilt of sin, that they would see their responsibility to believe in Christ? Some people are in such despair. They think, how can I do that unless I get my life all together? How can I do it when I feel so dirty and ashamed? It says, while well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing that you can do. You cannot reform your own life enough to enter heaven. It is all the work of Christ. We need to realize the point of exhortation that is given that the sinner must be called to believe. A sinner must understand the promise of God in saving them from their sin. A sinner must understand there is no hope apart from him, but there is glorious hope in him. And so continuing with verses 17 and 18, it says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We had the sign of baptism, of obedience and baptism, and now we have a sign of those who believe. The sign of baptism was an outward expression of inward faith, but these signs are signs of authenticity, of message. In order to confirm the Word of God for faith, there were certain supernatural uh, confirmatory signs that were administered to the apostles, in other words, these five signs attest to those who believed during the apostolic period. The signs authenticated the belief of the earliest believers, but then it was done i I really want to point out the grammar here in in verse sixteen, The one who believes. Or doesn't believe is singular. It's an individual invitation to believe or not to believe in Jesus Christ. But when you get to verse 17, the pronoun those is plural and articulate. Uh, articulary. The purpose of the pronoun is to take place of the noun, and the only plural noun that shows up in the context is the eleven that we saw in verse fourteen. And so he gives the commission in verse 15. And so in the English it makes it look like anyone uh, who believes can do this, but the Greek doesn't doesn't show that. It shows that these signs were specifically for the eleven or those whom, uh, they were with to give these signs these signs were used as a jump start to the uh, first century church. If you would just please turn to uh, Hebrews chapter two Hebrews chapter two, and we 'll see how this this shows up Hebrews chapter two and verses two and three. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoke, spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? It was confirmed. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, in Second Corinthians 12.12, 12, it says, Truly the signs of the apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. See, the apostolic believers would be able to do miracles in Jesus' name, they would drive out demons and that showed Jesus's victory over Satan. and many of Jesus's followers had already been given the gift, already had expelled demons. We saw that clearly in um, or you can see that clearly in Acts chapter 8, verse 7, 16, verse 18 and 19 verses 15 and 16. There they would be able to speak in new tongues. But this often gets confused. This refers to natural foreign language that allows the evangelizer to communicate with other people groups, to communicate the gospel. And this was clearly shown to be, uh, to be effective at the birth of the church, which happened on the day of Pentecost. And later in the apostolic period of the early church, in uh, Acts and First Corinthians, now at Pentecost there were Jewish men from the diaspora who came to Jerusalem. They heard the gospel in their own language, language which the apostles spoke, and had no previous training. So we need to be cautious here and understand that verse 17 has to be combined with verse 20 or else you have an error of the miraculous gifts. And uh, uh, protection can enter into or or we can enter into these practices in the church, which would be wrong because that was not for us, that was for them. The gifts... um, were demonstrated in the first century. But once Christianity had established the word of God, those would stop. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, what does it say? It says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And so, that we need to understand that these signs were given for a very specific reason that the verbal inspired word of God was being preached by the apostles in the early church. And you have to remember, this is the first time these Jewish men would have heard the word of God in any other language than Hebrew. And so all of a sudden you go, wow, this is incredible. This was glorious confirmation that God was with those who spoke that, the word. This was confirmation that showed Christ's victory over the power of the devil and evil spirits, that they were able to cast out demons in Jesus' name. If you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verses 22-25. through 25. This is often missed. So many churches, well, you know, we're not really sure about that. And then the charismatic churches or you know, they'll, they'll end up going, well, you know, uh, we'll just not use these verses because that doesn't really show what we're trying to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 through 25. It says, therefore, tongues are for a sign. Tongues are for a sign. What does it say? Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophecy is not for unbelievers, but those who believe. What is prophecy? It is prophecy of the Word of God. you want to prophesy these these days right here in the Bible when you read the Bible out loud and proclaim it, you are prophesying what God has to say. It's not some you know telling of the future and some you know uh uh Soothsaying. It says, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophecy and unbeliever or all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and he is convicted Um, he is convinced by all and convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. The the day of Pentecost, we see all of this coming together. If you would please turn to Acts chapter 2. This, this really should put an end to this foolishness of this gibberish, this ecstatic speech that's, that's talked about as so-called tongues. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. That word tongues should be translated language. It's, it's a shame that it was translated in saying tongues because it should say languages, but it says tongues. So it says, Began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language then they were amazed and marvelled saying to one another look are not all of these uh, are not all these who speak galileans and how is it that we hear each in our own Language in which we were born. Par, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopot- uh, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining uh, Cyrene, visitors from Rome both Jew and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. I hope you see, they all came together, they were in Jerusalem, there was confusion because everyone heard the apostles and the disciples speaking in their own language. This was a sign of, that God had instituted the new covenant. And so Peter answered their perplexities by preaching to them a sermon that they could understand. And by the victorious resurrection power of Jesus Christ being exerted through the Holy Holy Spirit's working, 3,000 were converted to Christ and added to the church that day. Now, verse 18 of our text says, and they will take up serpents and they will drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. We don't see this. There is no evidence in Scripture that anyone handling snakes or picking up snakes in purpose. But we do see in Acts 28.3 that Paul was bitten by a deadly serpent that was hiding in a bundle of sticks on the island of Malta, and it had no ill effects. This is not mentioned for the purpose of people taking up snakes. This is mentioned by the providence of God watching over his people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually wrote about a cult in the first century that ended up, taking this and they started to use deadly drugs and this would all have sort of a influence on these so-called Christian circles and some uh, commentators conclude that mark 1618 in the Greek should actually be rendered as a conditional clause with the third clause as the conclusion this should be, More correctly, uh, read, and if they be compelled to pick up snakes with their hands, and if they should be compelled to drink deadly poison, it shall by no means harm them. This promise of immunity by divine protection in either situation refers to an, an occasion where maybe even persecutors Would force a believer to do things, uh, or just by accident, like the Apostle Paul had with these these snakes. There is no intention or suggestion that all people should have an immunity or test the Lord in performing these foolish practices. And also in eight verse eighteen, it says they would lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. The apostles were given special ability to heal people and even raise people from the dead. We can see that in Acts nine, uh, nine thirty-six through forty-three. Um, in verses thirty-six and thirty-seven, it says, "At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and char." Charitable deeds which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. So here's this, this lady. She's in uh, at Joppa, and it's clear that the other the disciples that were around this lady, they summoned the Apostle Peter. And so if these were not unique to the apostles, there would be, why would they summon? So Acts 9.38 says, And since Lydia was near Joppa, and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men with him, imploring him not to delay in the coming. So they knew that Peter was there. If everyone had this gift, this miraculous gift, why didn't they do it? It's because it wasn't for everyone. It was only done for a a period of time to authenticate the word and the ministry of God. Also, we have the Apostle Paul saying that he had so many infirmities. And it says that he actually told Timothy, take a little wine to settle your stomach. If that was the case, that they could be healed and it was an ongoing thing, why did anyone have any infirmities? And we read that about the Apostles. They did have these And so I hope you see the whole point of this is that we now have the written Word of God in the Bible. And so we don't stand on miraculous signs. We don't need to. We stand on the Word of God. And if we lose our focus, we'll lose our focus on the Word of God. We are here for a reason. We are here to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. world. And the faithful gospel presentation is basically this, that you're a sinner, you must have a savior to be forgiven of your sins in sight of the holy God. And God must punish sin wherever he finds it. He has no other option to himself but to faithfully uh, Uh, to be faithful to his own character and his own righteous expectation of you, except to punish you if you do not believe in Christ. He has punished his dear son and only begotten son on the cross in your place if you will believe in him. There's the only remedy for the problem of your guilt and cleansing of your conscience is Christ and Christ alone. Jesus, therefore, was sent by God to become that substitute for you. He was He rendered to God a perfect obedience to the law on your behalf. He died so that the punishment that was due you for committing all your sins is laid upon Him. That's imputed in it righteousness. We have, uh, we, uh, the, our sin is imputed onto Christ and His righteousness is imputed onto us. And this was done in the past 2,000 years ago. But the thing about it is that trans, Transaction can take place in the presence, in the present time. We can be justified right here, right now, just as the apostles were. And so we can be taken out from under the wrath of God. Folks, we have to understand that when you believe in Christ, you are reconciled to God. You now have eternal favor with God because of the grace working in your heart. And you have been set free from sin and now you can live to God. You know, the Spirit of God works a witness in all of those who are His. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He has given us His Son. We all know God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the simple proclamation of the gospel and that's what we preach. So let's quickly move on to verses 19 and 20. It says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, He was received into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Mark wrote the gospel in order to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the way he started this gospel. Mark 1.1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it it would... sure save us a lot of headaches and disappointment if at the moment we were saved we would go to heaven i know i i just i said that earlier but i'll tell you what that's not what the plan was the plan wasn't that we would go to heaven because if we would go to heaven we would see Uh, We would be, be made like Him. We would be perfect. We would know all Scripture. We would know all those mysteries. But the Lord doesn't do that. He leaves us for a purpose. He left us to do the work that we need to do. Christ was taken into heaven because His work was done. We are left on earth because our work is not done. Folks, The only thing that I can do is help you understand the importance of taking the gospel. And in order to do that, I would like to close by having you turn to the the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. And I hope this will bring conviction where it needs to bring conviction I hope that it will have you look at your lack possible, lack of warning men of dying and spending an eternity in hell. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting with verse 16. Now it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity listen to this, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have been, you have delivered your soul. Are we warning? Do we have the blood of the unsaved on our hands because we have not taken the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. If you would please turn finally to Acts chapter 20, verses 25 and 26. Here, the Apostle Paul says something that I hope that we can also say in the end. Starting with verse 25. And indeed, now I I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. The Apostle Paul was faithful. Will we be found faithful on that final day? Having taken and proclaimed the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person here, that each of us because we have heard these these all these these years the gospel of Christ that in faithfulness we will stand with those people on that hillside in Galilee and hear the great commission and we would be willing to go and proclaim the gospel the glorious gospel we pray that we would take this indeed to all nations and that that would continue for generations to come. Lord, I, I pray that You would help us to deal with all of that in the present, that we would look at our lives our opportunities, everything that we had and have, that we would put all aside for the sake of the Savior and for the sake of eternity. We know that there is one reason why we are still here on this earth, being built up and edified by the preaching of Your Word, and that is to take that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. I pray at the end we can be as confident as the Apostle Paul and say, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. We pray this in Christ's most glorious name. Amen.